0: Message is entitled "Remember and Rejoice." Remember and rejoice. And so, how many of you are on Facebook? Two. Excellent. How many are on? You guys have uh, maybe? Do you do you maintain like a photo stream of, of all your pictures digitally now? And maybe you got Google Photos or something like that. Every once in a while, it kind of reminds you of your. Your memories, so to speak, whether you get the Facebook memories or, you know, or okay, I, let me. I'm talking to the crowd here. How many of you have photo albums at home? There we go. We have more photo albums, scrapbooks. Yes, we've got a few scrapbooks in the house. Okay, so once in a while, do you go through those, kind of remember life before? Remember, remember when your kids were really young, or maybe you celebrated when you had life, had a life prior to kids. Um, say that gently we love you guys but memories are fun to look at you know me and my kids and we all do that once in a while because we throw all of our photos into google photos and it brings up memories once in a while and sometimes it'll go back five years sometimes it'll go back 10 years as as time moves on now we're getting 15 years ago and you know, brought up pictures of, of when Jess and I were living in Oregon and Cammie was just one, almost two years old. And so it's kind of fun to look back on on those days and just kind of relive some of those memories. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, sometimes you look back and go, I didn't really want to see that or remember that memory. I was hoping that would have stayed buried. Or maybe you've lost somebody and you see a photo of them and it brings back memories of that individual. Maybe it's good memories, maybe it's not so good memories. Whatever the case may be, whether the memories are good or bad, they're there for us to remember, to reflect, to recall events or whatever it might be. Now for me, as one who used to be in the field of education, Particularly, as you guys know, some of you might might know, I I taught history for about 10 years. Studied it for over probably 20, maybe 22 years. Spent some time studying American history. And I had the pleasure of, when I was teaching, to bring kids back to the East Coast. And when you go back to the East Coast, you go to Washington, D.C., where all of You know, history's everywhere, but where our foundation is and and all of that, we we relive some of those memories to be on site. Now, in some respect, you can go to Washington, D.C. and see all the monuments and memorials. You know, the monuments and memorials to Washington and Jefferson and FDR and all the other presidents. You see some of the war memorials, like the Vietnam War Memorial, Korean War Memorial, which to me is those two Vietnam and Korean War Memorials, if you've seen those, you may have seen pictures of them, but if you've seen them in person, they're awe-inspiring. You know, I'm going I'm to tell you this really quick because I just have to. When the Korean War Memorial was built, you know how the Vietnam Memorial has 58,000 names etched into that marble? If you've seen that memorial, you know which one we're talking about, the, the, the walls? Now, the Korean War Memorial, if you haven't seen that, instead of names, they've taken photos from the war and etched, laser-etched photos of soldiers and images of the Korean War into the marble. So it's a little bit different experience. And in fact, I was told by one of the the, uh, park rangers or docents there at the memorial, when they were building it and they first opened it up, they invited a bunch of former Korean War veterans to go and see the memorial. And it still gives me chills because one of those soldiers was walking along the wall and what do you think happened? He saw his own face. Not in the reflection of the marble, but the actual laser-etched image that was chosen to be on the memorial was him. So you can imagine the memories that that would have brought that soldier, that guy, of what he had experienced in that time. But then you can see all the monuments and memorials, awe-inspiring, amazing. But you can also go back east and see the historic sites, memorials and monuments to events like jamestown and colonial williamsburg you can go to some of the the battlefields like gettysburg and and see where some of these battles and things took place you can go to philadelphia and, and go into the actual room and place where they signed the constitution and declaration and so as a historian i would walk into those places or stand in those fields or look at those monuments and my mind would be flooded with all the things i would just read in a textbook but then to be on the historical sites kind of takes it another step, right, where you're actually on the field and, and, and looking at the place where these things actually took place. And so the reason I bring that up, because every trip I would take the kids on, probably did it about, I think, nine, almost nine times now, but well, whatever the case might be, whenever we were get, leaving the airport, headed to the first place we were going to go and tour, before we went into the place to tour, I'd ask everybody on the bus one specific question. Why do we study history? Now, you may know an answer to that. You may have your answer to that. But that's the question I would always pose, because otherwise we're just going on vacation to look at a bunch of marble and things etched into marble or, or whatever it might be, right? But if, unless we actually grab a hold of why those monuments, memorials, and historic landmarks exist, we need to understand that. So the question I'd always pose is, why do we even study history? Now, there is a very famous phrase out there that you might be thinking of that you may have heard of before, and it's attributed to a few different people who have kind of changed the words for themselves. But they would say, like these three people, one of them being Winston Churchill, would say, the reason we study history is so that we what? So that we're not doomed to repeat it. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Now, if we know our own history, we have doomed ourselves countless times. Because we're not learning history, we're not reading, we're not studying it, we're not taking it to heart. We might read those things so we can do well on the test, but then we throw those memories aside because they don't matter anymore because we filled in the blank. We circled C if we didn't know or whatever the case might be, right? But if we actually take those events to heart and why we remember that information is key to how we move forward as a culture in society today. That's the idea behind it. In fact, I pull a lot of good information from uh, what's called Pixarian theology, I don't know if you're familiar with Pixarian theology, but there is a great theologian in, in, in the Pixarian world. His name was Toe Mater, and Toe Mater said this: <laughs> "Says there ain't no need to watch where I'm going. I just need to know where I've been." And that's why the great theologian Mater could drive backwards. Says <laughs> I don't need to see where I'm going. I just need to know where I've been. Now. I know it's a cartoon rusted out old tow truck but there's some meaning behind that. We need to look back. We need to reflect. We need to remember. Because it's important for how we move forward. Does that make sense? Now, you don't and I've used this example too. When you drive, you don't constantly look in the rearview mirror when you drive. That would be dangerous. But every once in a while, is it proper to look in the rearview mirror or your side mirrors to check out your surroundings, to see what's coming up behind you or what's behind you, whatever else, right? There's purpose for looking back. And so what I pose to you now is, is there a biblical call to remember? Is there a biblical justification to study history? And at least three verses... Provides us the answer is yes. It's Isaiah chapter 46 verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Did you catch that? Remember the former things of old. The next one is Hebrews chapter 10 verse 32. says, Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. And then Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's the key that I want to sit on for this morning. That through the things of old, the things that were written before, are for our encouragement. Why? So we can pass a test? No so that we might have hope. That's the first note I want you to write in. The reflection on the past should give us hope for the future. Now, when we talk about good times and we talk about bad times, either one, it doesn't matter. I know it matters to you, and I know in reality it will matter because it will bring up some emotion, some good, some raw. But whatever the memory is, those memories exist to give us hope. Because if we look back on our life, maybe some of the mistakes that we've made individually, the things that we've done, that should encourage us and motivate us not to repeat those things so that we have hope for who we are to be moving forward. Take it away from Scripture so we could just be a better person. Isn't that the goal? It should be, but if we don't learn from the mistakes that we've already made, how are we ever going to be a better person? Now, if you put that into scripture, what did it just tell us? Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ, Hebrews 10. Think back when Christ offered you freedom and salvation through the blood of Christ offered you hope. How did that make you feel? Reflect on that. Remember that. And maybe a lot of us can say, well, I didn't have the intense, emotional, fall-on-my-face experience of, of coming to Christ. Doesn't matter. You still have memory of Christ in you. And so we need to recall. We need to reflect on the past. And that should give us hope for the future. But ultimately, that's going to be dependent on who we look to as the author of those events. Whether good or bad, God has allowed us to walk through things for our benefit, for our hope to give him glory. And that's what Joshua 4 is all about. So we will read a little bit. Let's read the first seven verses of Joshua chapter 4. So if you're there, read with me. Joshua 4, starting in verse 1. When all the nations had finished pass, passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people from each tribe, a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder. Now if we pause there for a minute, that may give you a little understanding of the size of these stones. This is not pick up a little pebble, this is pick up a stone and put it on your shoulder. So there was going to be some weight behind these stones, which means all 12 put together, there's going to be some significance visually to this monument, this memorial. It says, put a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Forever. Not just a nice story to tell and then move on. But a memorial forever. A memorial of what? The initial event of what just happened. But for all these people that just crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, it will also serve as a memorial to the goodness and faithfulness of God that they just experienced for the last 40 years. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I think it's very important to recall those events that just happened over the last 40 years of how faithful God was to the people of Israel and how we can see his faithfulness to us through their story, the monuments of the Exodus. Number one, let's go back to where they were, back to Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, if we start there, it said in verses 23 and 25, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So in the midst of their slavery, they cried out to God for help. And God heard their cries. God heard their prayers. So point number one that I want you to consider. In our times of trouble, where is the first place that we go? In our times of trouble, where is the first place that we grow? Go. When we groan, when we complain, when we cry, when we need help, where do we go? So in that, because God heard Him, the power of God was shown through the plagues of Egypt. We can read that in Exodus chapter seven through 12. You want to go back and revisit those stories? please do. To see the power of God and how He answered and began to answer, Their cries for help. The power of God was displayed through the plagues that He sent onto Egypt. Next, salvation came through obedience during the Passover. We talked about that just last week. Again, salvation through obedience during the Passover. We read about that in Exodus chapter 12. So let me ask you as God promises to provide, are we obedient? as he promises to provide for us, as he answers our call for help, are we going to be obedient to what he asks us to do? He gave them very explicit instructions as to what they were to do in order to receive salvation. Right? Prepare and cook the food a certain way, eat a certain way, put that blood over the doorposts, and his spirit would pass over. Next. Next. In Exodus chapter 13, he leads them out of Egypt. And we just mentioned this as well. By day, a cloud, and by night, by fire. God was always with them. Isn't that a promise that we talked about in Joshua chapter 1? Be strong and very courageous, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. He led them out. As God promises to deliver, we are to follow. That shouldn't be a very deep statement. (laughs) But it is. As God promises to guide, as God promises to be with us and lead us, we need to follow. And in order to follow properly, we need to keep our eyes on him. Just as the ark was going to be before the people about a half mile ahead of them, so all the people of Israel could keep their eyes on the presence of God. So are we to keep our eyes on him. He brings them to the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14. We know that story. Just like he just did for the Jordan, he did for the Red Sea. Moses was obedient to do what God asked him to do. The waters parted. All the people went across. The water came back, destroying the Egyptian army. And on the back end of that story, we read in Exodus 14, verse 31, Israel saw the great power of the Lord that he used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. What does it mean to fear God? It is a reverential trust in who God is. A reverential trust. When they saw his power displayed and he brought them salvation from the Egyptian army that caused them reverential trust in who he was and the promise that he made to them, all they had to do was obey and follow. Obey and follow. When God delivers and provides salvation, what are we to do? praise Him. When He delivers, we praise Him. So we're to follow, we're to obey, and we're to praise Him when He delivers in His time. So you wouldn't think the Israelites would need much more than that. (laughs) Do we need more than that? Everybody say yes. Let's move on. As they move on from their salvation in the Red Sea, from the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, God moves them on and brings them to a place called Mara. And they didn't have much water for them. And the people started to groan. People started to complain. You ever get a little angry Sometimes? Never? Liar. You, know, you, you ever get, when you get thirsty? It changes your mood, doesn't it? So that's okay. We're not going to hold that against the people for the moment. But there wasn't a water source. But God, in his miraculous way, was going to provide because he said he would. So he told Moses, here's a log. Take that log, throw it into the water, and it turned the water that was there sweet because the water was bitter. He threw the log into the water, turned it sweet, and the people were able to drink, providing once again for them. So let me ask you another question. Have you ever found yourself complaining or groaning because you didn't have what you think you needed? (laughs) You ever found yourself complaining because you didn't have what you think you needed? Just want you to rest on that for a minute. So he provides them water and he moves on, fulfills the story and brings them to a place where there's multiple springs of fresh water and they are to encamp there. The next story. Thirst is fulfilled. Now they're getting a little hungry. But we're in the wilderness. We're in the middle of nowhere. How are we going to provide food? And so what do they do? They start to complain. They start to groan. They start to blame Moses. Why are you bringing us out to the wilderness to die? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to where we had three meals a day, where everything was fine. And God provides again. Exodus chapter 16, He provides bread and meat for them. Remember what they did with that bread? That manna? They kept it in a bowl, put it into the ark as a uh, memory of the provision of what God did for them. Providing them an abundance. Read Exodus 16 sometime this next week. I want you to read very specifically how he provides. He doesn't just give each person a piece of bread. He provides for them exactly what they needed for the course of that week. And if they were obedient, they had all they needed and then some. Have you ever complained because you didn't have enough of what you wanted? Amen. You ever groaned because you felt you deserved more or needed more than what you have? And finally, we're going to sit down on the next story. In Exodus chapter 17, there's two stories in there. Again, they're in the wilderness, so they're thirsty. Understandable. So as they continue to move on in the wilderness... They're thirsty once more, but they're in a place where there isn't a lot of provision of water. And so God says, I'm not only going to give you water, I'm going to give you water from the most unlikely source. And so he tells Moses, take that staff you use to cross the Red Sea, go to this rock, hit the rock, and I will have water flow endlessly to provide for all the people. So Moses does, takes some of the elders, goes to the rock, hits the rock, water flows from the most unlikely source. Anybody ever tapped a rock for water? No. The power of God. Miraculous provision. Now, let me clarify once again and put us in the scene. What if you're in the back of the caravan of people? You didn't see the rock hit. You didn't see necessarily the water even flow from the rock. That water was just provided for you. But what did you hear about how the water was received? What does it take sometimes when God provides for you and you didn't recognize or see the source of your own eyes, but you count it a blessing from God? Are you following me? The second half. No, let, me, let, me, let me not get ahead of myself. So despite all, all of this, everything that God had done up to this point, there was still a lot of internal struggle for the people, right? There's a lot of groaning, groaning. There's a lot of complaining. We march, march, march. Complain, complain, complain. God provides. We march, march, march. Don't have what we want. Complain, complain, complain. God provides. I know none of you do this. Because you all remember the provisions of God, always. You never complain because you know God is always going to provide. I know that. But can you see yourself in this story? That's what I want us to grab a hold of for a moment. And why it's so important that we remember and we recall and we reflect on all that God has done and provided for us in the past as motivation to give us hope for what's coming up. Amen? So despite all that has happened thus far, they were still struggling internally. Let me read first Exodus 17 1-7 so you can have a little context. It says, all the congregation of the people of Israel camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me why do you test the lord but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against moses and said why did you bring us up out of egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst so moses cried to the lord what shall i do with this people they are almost ready to stone me the lord said to moses pass on before the people and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink And Moses did so. And he called the name of the place Masa. The quarreling. He tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So the first thing I want you to to grab from that story. This is the next point in your notes. Is that the people wanted God to act as they dictated. The people wanted God to act as as they dictated, rather than wait for him to provide as he had promised. So that's what it said in Exodus 17, verse 2. They quarreled with Moses. Their physical thirst for water drove them to a passionate distrust in Moses' leadership, which led ultimately to a distrust in God's provision. And in uh, Exodus 17, verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? Now, I know, we can look at these people and go, are you kidding me? Did God not bring you out of Egypt? Did God not bring you across the Red Sea? Did God not provide water and food for you out of nowhere? And yet you sit here and say, is God among us or not? Shame on you, Israelites. Shame on us. Because how many times have we done that? God, where are you? God, I'm hurting. God, I don't have what I need. God, I don't have what I want. God, I believe I, sh- I should have more by this point in my life. God, I deserve this. Where are you? Why aren't you giving me what I want? Now, maybe you haven't said those words verbatim, but something along those lines. We don't want to reflect on those statements we've made towards God, but we all have at some point. Or if we haven't made them to God, we've made them to an individual. We've set them to an, a person. And if we believe Scripture that God has put that person in authority over our life, when we complain and groan against that person, we complain and groan against God. You see that connection? They grumbled against Moses, and what did Moses say? Why are you complaining to me? I'm here just like you. Why are you testing the Lord? Now, quote I was telling you about comes from John Calvin. I want you to listen to these words. In everything that they had experienced, John would say, they do, in effect, suppose that Moses was simply an imposter. Aaron must have been a deceiver. That pillar of cloud and fire, a mere sham and illusion which impo- imposed upon their senses. That long series of miracles which had rescued them, served them, and fed them, a chain of cheats, and the promise of Canaan, a banter upon them. For as soon as anything occurs contrary to the wishes of the one who distrusts God, he has recourse to murmur and dispute. When we take our eyes off of God and everything that he's done for us, all we're going to do is sit and whine and complain. Because we don't have what we think we should have. At that moment that we should want it. Look, I know this is heavy because I know every single one of us have been there. Myself included. But I want to encourage us today to spend some time and reflect. Spend some time and remember everything in your power that you can recall of how God has provided for you. What God has given to you. And there is no oversimplification of the provision of God. Can I say that again? There is no oversimplification to the provision of God. Case in point, how many of you are here this morning? God's provision. You're here because you woke up. God's provision. You saw the sunshine. You feel the heat and the humidity today? God's provision. You may not like it, but that's God's provision, because that's what he desires for this day. We can sit here and go, why, God, does it have to be 106 degrees, and we're inside this sauna of a tent this morning? That's God's provision, because you know why? We're inside. We could be outside. Anybody remember last July? (laughs) Right out there? My forehead does. It was hot. But don't oversimplify. You going to eat today? God's provided for you. Are you able to drink some water today? God's provided for you. You thank Jesus we're all wearing clothes today? God has provided for you. And provided for everybody that has to look at you. No offense. <laughs> we are meant to be covered. That's God's provision. Don't oversimplify. Don't think, well, I didn't cross a sea to get here today. God didn't work some crazy miracle. Yes, he did. We've just gotten so content with our life that we've become blind to the things that God does for us. So we need to remember and recall everything that he has done. In the book of Psalm chapter 78, in verse 11 it says, Speaking of the people of Israel, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the most high in the desert. So may we come to a place of complete dependence on him. No matter what we have currently, or in your estimation, what you don't have, we are still dependent upon God as we move forward in this journey that he has us on. As we are all on the same journey together from here to eternity, yet you're individually on your own personal journey in what God has called you to do in your life. No matter where you're at on that journey, remember, recall, reflect, and use that as motivation of what he's done for you to provide you hope for where you're going. So in the last example we used, when God struck the rock and water flowed, what did he use to provide for his people? A rock. A rock. So let me put it into your mind. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. It says, behold, I am the one who was laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Who is that cornerstone for us? Say it, church. It's Jesus Christ. He is our rock. He is our stone. John chapter 7, verse 38, it says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Who is Christ? Our stone, our rock our cornerstone. And what did our rock say? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What a beautiful connection that God made prior in the wilderness for the people who were thirsty, needed something to drink. And he said, strike the rock and you'll have everything that you need. So along with the internal struggles they faced as they journeyed, they would also face external struggles. Still in Exodus chapter 17, the second half, in verses 8 through 16, Let me just sum it up for you. An outside force comes against the Israelites. Amalek, and the Amalekites, as they're called, come to fight against Israel. And so Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. Whenever Moses held up his hand, the Israelites were victorious. Whenever he dropped his hand, Amalek would be victorious. And so because Moses understood his insufficiency for the moment, called upon a couple of his brothers to come on either side of him, so he took Aaron and he took Hur, H-U-R, her. But what did they do first to provide Moses a little rest? They grabbed a stone and allowed Moses to sit down. And then Aaron and her on either side held up his hands until the victory was secure. We need other people in our life. We need other people to come alongside of us and hold up our hands because we are insufficient on our own. We need that help. So whatever the reason for that war, ultimately, it really doesn't matter. But at that moment, God was going to use that war as another sign to his people that he loved them and that he would fight for them. That brought up a question for me, and I want to see if maybe you thought of the same thing. If God brought the Amalekites to fight against Israel in that moment, and he was going to use that moment as a sign that he would fight for his people. Why didn't God do that against the Egyptians right off the bat? I don't know if anybody else thought about that. Why couldn't he be had just turn around and say, all right, go fight against them and I will be victorious. The only thing that God speaks to is that in some seasons, God calls us to Wait. God calls us to be still. In other seasons, he calls us to act. So we have to pay attention. We have to be in tune with what God wants us to do in the moment. But you see in that story the power of prayer. That rod that Moses held up that he used to split the waters, that he used to strike the rock, that he used to lift up, For the Israelites to be victorious, was there anything special about that staff? No, it was just a symbol. Just like the Ark of the Covenant, just a symbol of what? The presence and power of God. But the power of prayer is something that we need to understand. We need to understand the power and effectiveness of an active prayer life. James 5.16 says, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. But I want to bring us to the end of Exodus 17. There's something specific that happened at the end of that battle when the Israelites were victorious. This is what God told Moses to do. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Fast forward to where we're at now. God has brought his people to the banks of the Jordan. God has miraculously parted the Jordan. The people have entered the promised land. God's power, God's presence before them. And now what does God tell Joshua to do? Set up a memorial. What Joshua witnessed in that battle, what Moses told him to do to remember He is now carrying on that tradition. I think that's something special. So in Joshua 4, this moment confirms all that we've just discussed. Everything that's happened over the past 40 years, Joshua is carrying that on saying, we need to set up a memorial to remember and reflect and recall everything that God has done. Not just in that moment and then forget until the next moment occurs, but those 12 stones that they took from the Jordan, that they took with them and, and set up at camp, and Joshua set up another 12 stones in the midst of the river where the priest's feet stood, because the waters of the Jordan would rise and the waters of the Jordan would fall based on the season. And so when those waters would get low, what do you think would appear in the midst of the Jordan? A memorial to God's goodness of where he brought his people into the promised land. In Joshua chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, that this may be a sign among you that when your children in time to come ask, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Mom, dad, Did you hear that instruction? We need to tell our children of the goodness and the faithfulness and the provision and the power of God that he has shown in our life and tell that to our kids. Because then they're going to tell it to their kids. And so on and so on. So that for generations to come, people will understand the power and provision of God, not just in your life, but in theirs as well, and their children and their children, and so on and so on. Don't forget Exodus 17, verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. So Moses set up an altar after that defeat of the Amalekites. The Israelites sung praise to God after he brought them over the Red Sea. We're now setting up two memorials after crossing the Jordan. These are special occurrences that we need to remember. And so I'm getting to us. And hopefully you're thinking about them now. Maybe jotting some points down now of how God has been faithful and good to you. Psalm 20 verse 5 says, May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So as we look back on these events, again, the common thread, the rock. In John 19, verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced the side of Jesus with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. When Moses was asked to strike the rock, what would flow out? Water, provision, life. And when Jesus breathed his last, they stuck a spear into his side and outflowed blood and water. And on the rock that Moses sat and found rest amongst the trials of his life at that moment, what does Jesus tell us in Matthew 11, verse 28? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we sit on the provision of God. He is rest. We trust In his faithfulness and his goodness and his power because it provides for us everything that we need. We need to remember those things. So in the last few verses of Joshua chapter 4, if you jump down to verse 19. It says the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Now if we pause there for a moment, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail but there's something specific as to why the lord would use that date in his word. that when they came up out of the jordan, when all the people had crossed over the jordan, it was on the 10th day of the first month. why is that important? because the beginning of god's salvation for the people in egypt on that exact day 40 years earlier. So when God said they were going to wander for 40 years, God keeps his promise. 40 years to the day of when his salvation started to when they entered the promised land. was 40 years exactly. Verse 20, And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So you see the connection that Joshua made? This wasn't just about the Jordan. That these stones, which represent the miracle of the Jordan, also represent the miracles of before So we need to set up our memorials. We need to set up our banners. We need to set up our monuments that we can remember, that we can look at, that we can recall and use those as motivation for the purpose that's before us. Let's read verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Is your memorial only for you? No. What God allows you to go through, what God brings you through, those memorials will serve as a reminder not only to you, but also as a witness and a testimony of God's goodness for all people. We just have to be willing to do what? Open up our mouth and speak. Tell them what they mean. You have scars in your life? Albeit emotional or maybe even physical? Those are memorials. Those are monuments that you can use to speak to the goodness of God. Use them. Don't rest in them. Don't dwell in them. Don't become depressed in them. That may happen and that's okay, but you immediately have to look at those things and move forward with hope. Because God says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans not to harm you, but to what? Give you a future and a hope. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. A future and a hope. So think of your times of recognition and praise. But also the past sin, your past struggles, whatever you went through, whatever God provided you freedom from and provision for, use that as a testament to our Heavenly Father's constant love for us. So let me close with this. Point number three in your notes. These will happen back to back, I promise. So, as you reflect on your journey, as you reflect on your journey, use it as a time to remember who God is to you. And I want you to hear those words very specifically. Reflect on who God is to you, not only who He was, because He was, He is. And He is, is to come. So we need to keep that in mind. He always is. Despite your sin, He freed you. Despite your repetitive grumbling and complaining and whining and woe is me's, He provided for you. Despite your fears, He saves you and protects you. Despite your failures, He still fights for you. He frees you. He provides for you. He saves you. He fights for you. Rejoice in those moments. Those are the memorials of God's faithfulness. And the next point is not so much anything to fill in, but questions to consider. What are your monuments? What are your memorials? What can you look at? I don't care if it was yesterday. Or if it was 40 years ago. What can you reflect on and remember of how God has been faithful to you? So yes, your history teacher looks you in the face right now and says, you have homework. You have homework to do. I want you to put the pen to the paper. Go home. Use this little note sheet or some computer or whatever else you want to do and Write the words down. How has God freed you? How has God provided for you? How has God saved you? Time and time again. Look over the course of your life. And again, you can't be too simple. It can be great. It can be extreme. It can be simple. I guarantee you, I know I only gave you five spots on your notes, but I'm sure you've got more than five. You want 10 more copies so you have 50 things to remember? Take them, because I'm sure you do. But put the pen to the paper. What did Moses do for Joshua? He wrote these things down as a memorial forever. So write your things down. And then one last thing. Share. One, share it with those closest to you. Tell others of God's faithfulness. Tell others of how God has been good to you. And help them recall and remember how God has been faithful to them. And they move forward. As we've talked about up to now between chapters 1 and 4, with strength, with courage, with confidence, because He never leaves you, He'll never forsake you. He'll always provide for you.